You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on April 30th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi there. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. So I see a lot of questions saved up here, and uh, let me start looking at these. Okay, there's a question from Zach here. Are research papers useful? How should I write them and when? You know, there's different, there's different levels of answering that question. For me, learning stuff, I find it really useful to have a project that I'm doing, some question that I'm trying to answer. That's the way I learn stuff. If it's just a question of, oh, you're supposed to learn this topic, go read this book and learn it, I find it much more difficult to, in an interesting way, absorb material. I find it much more interesting if it's like, here's this question. Can I answer this question? Let me try and push forward and answer that question and learn what I need to learn to be able to answer the question. And turns out you can, there's a great art in figuring out what's a good question to ask. And it's often the case that there are really good questions that maybe can now be answered because we have tools, for example, computational tools that let us address those questions that people have never had before. And so you can get, even if you think you're a pretty junior person in pretty sort of early stage person in some particular area, you can get to the point of being able to answer a question that nobody's ever answered before in that field, potentially using new tools, or maybe just because you thought of a better question to ask. And it's always, to me, it's like people often, as they think about these different fields, they say, oh, that's a question. Surely somebody must have answered that question. Don't assume that. Just because it may seem like an obvious question doesn't in any way mean that it's been answered. In fact, we, we see that in, in, in these uh, sessions, people will ask questions and I can sometimes tell you, well, it seems like an obvious question, but guess what? I know nobody knows the answer to that question uh, about something in science or whatever else. So, you know, just if you're learning about something and you say, I wonder about this, this, and this, it might be that, yes, actually that question is well answered. It might be that that question has never been answered. It might be that that question, you haven't quite defined the question well enough, and there is an answer if you define the question well, you kind of need to learn more to define the question well. But I think it's a, a, a terrific thing to sort of do research as you learn things. And for me, using computational language, using our Wolfram language stack and so on, that's the way to kind of uh, be able to pull in kind of artifacts from, well, the present or the future or something to apply them to things which are questions today. And so, you know, in, in, in whatever area you're looking at, it's like, um, what are the obvious questions? Can I use some of these methods, some of these computational methods to perhaps have a different way of answering that question than people have ever had before? Now, when it comes to writing research papers, you know, to me, things often only really make sense to me when I'm actually trying to write them down and or, or explain them to people. I mean, that's part of the reason I like doing these, uh, these sessions is because uh, you will ask me all kinds of questions where I'm not sure I've ever particularly thought about the answer to that question before. And the effort of trying to explain the answer really helps me understand what's going on. So to me, sort of writing the research paper is part of the whole story of doing the research. Often one of the things when you're doing computational kinds of things, it's like you're gonna make some great picture that's gonna indicate what's going on in, in your research. Sometimes one can make the mistake of saying, I'll, I'll write the stuff first and then I'll make the great picture at the end because I'm only gonna need it at the end. That's a big mistake. You should make the great picture as, as, as early upfront as possible because that's gonna be the thing that really shows you what's going on. Once you have that great visualization that uh, sort of pulls into one picture, all these different things, then you know that that's the thing which is going to explain what's going on to you. And you don't want a situation where you've written this whole long document and they say, now I'm gonna add this great picture. You make the picture and you say, oh my gosh, 
that picture shows something that's completely different from what I described in the rest of the document. Whoops, I have to go back to the beginning and, and redo the whole thing. No, get that picture up front so that it helps you understand what's going on as you hope it will help other people understand what's going on. Now, in terms of, of uh, you know, sometimes you'll be writing something. There's a question of, of being honest when you write, so to speak. That is, don't try and gloss over things that you sort of say, whenever somebody says, and I, I have to admit that I, I catch myself doing this, well, not so often these years because I'm aware of it. Whenever you say, it's obvious that, that's usually a very bad sign. It usually, that's the thing that's extremely unobvious and may not even be correct. And if you find yourself writing some document and about explaining something and you end up with, uh, with something where you're kind of glossing over it. You know, I suppose I have this problem because I've, I've gotten a lot of practice at writing in my life. And so I kind of know I can sort of elegantly write my way through lots of things, but I have to kind of make sure that I really understand it. I'm not just making some elegant statement. In fact, sometimes I'll make some wonderfully elegant statement. I'll be very proud of that elegant statement. And then I'll realize it's just a patch. It's not really addressing. It's not really teasing the ideas apart in the, in the best way. It's just making an elegant statement, which one can sort of write through and read through. And I kind of, with great regret, have to throw away my elegant statement um, because you know I've managed to sort of peel it back to understand what the real story is underneath. Um, so sometimes it's it's kind of an, an enemy of clear writing is, you know, you suddenly you get this very elegant statement, you manage to put these words together in a way that sounds really good, but you realize it's not actually the clearest way to explain what's going on. It sounds good, but it's not the clearest way to explain what's going on. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So when it comes to getting into sort of more professional research papers, uh, you know, my point of view is if you do research and you can figure something out or even clarify some particular issue, that's a good reason. If you can write a paper that people will understand, it's worth writing it. If you don't have anything to say or you'll write something nobody's going to understand, well, there's no point in writing it. When you get to the point where you're, for example, doing professional science or you're aiming towards professional science, um, there is a certain mandate effectively in professional science that you know people are expected to effectively write such and such a number of papers per year. It varies the, the number and the number of co-authors and things like that varies with the field of, of science. Like in an area like mathematics, there are fewer co-authors. In other areas like medicine, there are often many, many co-authors um, and so on. And, the, and the, the conventions about sort of whose name goes on the paper and what order and all this kind of thing, it varies from field to field. But fundamentally, if you're a professional scientist, you're kind of expected to write some number of papers per year. And, and honestly, sometimes the things that people write are very boring and nobody's ever going to read them. And it's kind of like, well, it's an incremental report on an incremental thing that's just kind of a ho-hum kind of, kind of thing. And, you know, there's a certain value to having those just because well, uh, you know, it's, it's a good way of, of kind of uh, uh, concretifying the work you're doing. For myself, uh, you know, I, I do science in a very open way. And so I'm like taking the notebooks, you know, uh, well, from notebooks that I create sort of every night and they get uploaded to the, to the cloud and people can look at them. And I'm doing a lot of things that are live streamed and so on. And occasionally I'll write something which gets put out in this uh, sort of public writings uh, area and so on. And, and uh, so for me, there's a lot of ways to kind of um, uh, concretify the incremental progress that I'm making for, for lots of kind of academic scientists. Really, the only way to do that is to write a paper, even if that paper is only very, very incremental and, and not that exciting to read. I think that the thing, you know, when people say, uh, the, you know, people, people sometimes think that a clearly written paper oh, it must all be easy if you can explain it that clearly. Well, uh, no, it's actually often very hard. It takes a lot of intellectual effort to explain things clearly and to make it seem simple, so to speak. And sometimes in, in academic paper writing, that sort of defeats itself because you make it seem very simple and then people will react to it and say, oh, it can't be very, very deep because it seems so simple. But 
the fact that it seems so simple, you know, you put a lot of effort into making it seem simple. It's kind of like the paradox of you have different products and one of them is more expensive than others. You know, you might think, oh, people are going to buy the cheaper product, but actually some of the time it's like, well, I want the really high quality version. I'm going to buy the more expensive one, even though really that doesn't actually probably isn't anything different about it, except that it's more expensive, so to speak. And, and that can happen with research papers as well. It, it looks fancier. And so it must be uh, have deeper things to say, even if you don't really understand it, even if it wasn't written clearly enough that people can understand it. But in terms of, of um, sort of stages of life to, um, to write research papers, I mean, I, I, I would say that doing research is a thing worth doing as early as you can. I mean, I started doing these things when I was well, probably 12 years old, something like that, doing sort of researchy type things and um, uh, sort of haven't looked back since. Um, I think it's, uh, it's really worthwhile, although it's important to kind of get the right questions. And, um, uh, you know, starting from questions that seem obvious to you to ask, that's a really good place to start. Now, in terms of, of you know, what are the venues? If you write your great research paper, what do you do with it? There are a number of online venues which are steadily getting a little bit more buttoned down and, and um, uh, a little bit less anything goes type places. But but there are there are plenty of venues. If you're doing stuff with Wolfram Language, there's our Wolfram Community uh uh, forum, which is a good place to, to post things and people make comments and so on. It's a it's sort of a, a good interactive place. Then when it gets a little bit fancier, there are the various preprint servers and so on. And then there are academic journals. Academic journals can be kind of messy and, and uh, a little bit of a, of a negative to interact with because, you know, you'll send your paper into an academic journal and you'll get back some kind of report from an anonymous reviewer that says, oh, I didn't understand this paper, I think it's all nonsense. And you'll be like, who is this person? That's, you know, they just didn't get it. They didn't bother to read what I wrote. And it's it can be a bit dispiriting, I think, for people to get those kinds of responses. Um, and a lot of the story of, of academic sort of peer reviewing is, is ultimately rather, it's sort of an in-game where people are referring to each other in their papers and it's kind of like a, like a whole weird sort of uh, sociological ecosystem, which if you're sort of coming from the outside and you're, you know, a high school student, college student, whatever, um, it's, it's uh, sort of a little bit tough to break into that. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, in, in today's world, getting your paper sort of uh, officially published in the finest journal, not that people necessarily know what the finest journal even is anymore, is probably not the most important thing. If you're at an early stage of, of career, Having having the thing out there and having people respond to it um, is uh, you know is is a big part of it. And whether it gets that the stamp of approval of some mysterious organization saying we're going to publish it in our journal now is probably less important than than other things. So uh, it's a few comments on on research papers. All right, we got um, uh, so many questions here. Um, Okay, there's a question from Kube here. Uh, what do I think of research and engineering? Isn't it better to work in a company that specializes in a certain field and knows it in and out and come up with something revolutionary instead of working at a university where everything is rather theoretical? Uh, good question about engineering. It's really a question of motivation. I mean, if you work at a company and you're part of some great project and you make some key contributions and that project is used by millions of people, for many people, that's an extremely satisfying thing to have happen. For other people, it's like, well, you know, do people know it was me, me, me? Is my name on that thing? That can be a motivator. And that's often not what happens at companies. You know, I, I was always um, uh, at our company many years ago. I um, uh, was very concerned because there are people who are making great contributions to things. And it's like, oh, I'd like the world to know you made these great contributions and so on. And it was interesting because some people were like, oh, yes, I, I want people to know this. And others were things like, no, 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 don't put my name on that stuff. I'm going to get technical support query questions about this piece of software if my name is on it. I don't want that. I want to feel the sort of pride and achievement of producing the software that lots of people are going to use. But I don't want my name on it because I don't want to kind of, you know, get all those sort of random tech support things. I don't care about having the me flag on the thing. So... You know, and, and, and there's a flip side to that, like, uh, you know, my company 
is called Wolfram Research, and we have this product called Wolfram Alpha. And so, you know, my name is on lots of these things. Uh, there, there comes a point where, in a sense, it's a it's a sort of a story of branding. You've you've built some some set of things, and it's kind of like I'm donating my name to these things to sort of co-brand them, and that that that's a somewhat different dynamic. It's a I've I've often thought there's a certain set of people. Uh, who named their companies after themselves out there in the world, whether it's you know Michael Dell or Mike Bloomberg or myself or you know lo lots of people who've who've named their companies after themselves and and there's some industries like I don't know law firms or something where where they're always named after the people who start them, and the question is what what is in common between all these people who name things after themselves, and you might have thought it was absolute rabid egotism, but it's absolutely not. It's it's you're building something and you care about that thing and you sort of take responsibility for the thing. And that's what ends up with people putting their names on things. And uh, and, and usually there's a force in, in the high technology world to have founders not put their names on things, because if the companies are are primarily supported by investors, the investors don't want to have the thing where it's called, you know, uh, Smith Incorporated and you know, then the investors are pushing out Smith because they think Jones would do a better job. And but they still stuck with this company being called Smith Incorporated. And, you know, for investors, it's much better if the name of the company is just, you know, company X, because then it's sort of plug compatible who's running the company. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, you know, one can argue about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But um, so, you know, in terms of, of engineering, Yes, in many kinds of engineering, the leading edge is happening in companies, not at universities. The things that happen at universities tend to be more on the, oh, that's going to be important in 20, you know, 10, 20 years, that type of thing. Whereas in a company, it's what's going to be important in a year or two kind of thing. And again, sometimes there are exciting things that are going to be important in 20 years. Sometimes it's like, there's a, in a field that's sort of rapidly moving, it's gonna be things that are, that are exciting in the next few years. I think that um, the other thing that can happen at universities is, and it's, it happened for a while, particularly in things like the software world. It's like one would have a situation, I think it's less true now, but it was true maybe 25 years ago, quite a bit. It was like, there were two kinds of software. There was software that was intended for people to use, and there's software that was intended for people to write a paper about. And the software that was intended for people to use, that was mostly happening in companies. And But then there was software which was just like, it's a cool thing, and we can write a paper about it. Of course, it doesn't really work properly. It doesn't really, it's not something people can really use, but it's a cool thing, and we can write a paper about it. And that's a different motivation and a different thing that, that one's getting done. And, and some of that, in moderation, some of that can be very valuable because it's doing things where to build the whole real working thing would be a huge amount of work and cost a lot of money and all those kinds of things. But we can still talk about it and the ideas are interesting at sort of a more academic level. But I would say in terms of people uh, doing work, it really depends on, you know, are you interested in being part of a team that's going to be sort of doing something where it could be important in the world here and now, or do you want to, are you more interested in being doing something where sort of you're the one exposing it to the world and you're the one sort of uh, presenting it and that's more, tends to be more of an academic kind of thing. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, oh gosh, a lot of very different questions here. Um, all right, this question from Nelson here. Uh, revealing that Nelson may not be the kid for whom, who is supposed to be the, the center of this, um, uh, of the demographic for my, my sessions here. But Nelson says, about 20 years ago, I heard about holographic storage. What happened with this kind of technology that didn't go forward? Okay, so first question is, well, okay, so in a computer, one of the critical elements is the memory. How do you store this digital information? How do you store the collection of bits that represents your document, your image, your video, your program, whatever else? And there are essentially all computers now use a particular method of storing that information, which is, uh, well, it's usually CMOS metal, complementary metal oxide semiconductor technology. It's, it's using, uh, using silicon, which is a semiconductor, 
um, to, to store those bits. I, I can explain a bit about how that works. And then we can talk about the many different variations of that that have been tried over the course of time to make better, stronger, faster uh, versions of how to store things. So essentially, well, let's see, how can, let, let me explain several different kinds of storage. So um, it used to be the case and is to some extent still the case that for very large scale storage of, of digital information, the most common thing to use is magnetic materials. And used to be the case that one would have disks which would spin around and, and what would happen is, well, okay, so, so I should explain, how do you store? So you're, you're storing digital information. So in the end, everything you're storing is turned into sequences of ones and zeros or ons and offs. And in a typical memory of a modern computer, you might have uh, a trillion bits of, of uh, maybe a little less, maybe a hundred billion uh, sort of uh, ones and zeros that are being stored. A uh, hundred hundred billion bits of information. Each bit is just whether it's a, a one or a zero. So one way to store that is with magnetic materials. Okay, so in a magnetic material like uh, for example, uh, iron. Uh, iron is magnetic, and what that means is that it can you can you can make a magnet out of iron. But what happens is in, inside the iron there are these electrons that are each little act like little tiny microscopic bar magnets. And essentially, what's happening is the iron the the electrons are sort of close enough together in the iron that they can, when one of them is lined up in a certain direction, it will tend to lead other ones to line up in the same direction. And pretty soon you can get all the electrons, so to speak, all of the particular kind of electrons in iron to all line up so that they're, so that they're all contributing something. They're all acting like little bar magnets all pointed in the same direction. And so that's how you produce a magnet that you can like, you know, an iron magnet that you can like pick things up with and so on. Okay. So Iron has this characteristic. It's what's called a ferromagnet um, or a ferromagnetic material. And it has the characteristic that the electrons are sort of close enough together that they will, if they're going to be lined up, they'll all line up. So you get this big magnetic uh, field. Okay, so there's another type of material called a ferrimagnet with an I instead of an O. And in a ferrimagnet, you can get little domains where things are, where all the electrons are effectively lined up, but it doesn't extend over the whole material. It doesn't extend to your whole bar magnets, just a little domain where, where the, where the things are lined up. And so what, what was done in uh, magnetic tapes, magnetic discs, things like this, what was done is if you, if you have a little bit of magnetism, if you have a little magnetic field, you can line up the electrons effectively in these small regions of the ferry magnet. And what you can do is you can say, this particular place on this particular disk represents this particular bit. If there's magnetism in this particular position, if the magnets, uh, if, if, the, um, if the electrons are lined up in this direction at this particular position, that represents a one. If they're lined up in the opposite direction, it represents a zero. And so what's done is you basically have this, this material, and it can be in different kinds of shapes. It can come as tape, where it's a, just a long, a long thing that you spool out, um, or it can be in a disc, where it's just a, a circular um, object, where there are little tiny sectors of the disc, where each position there is uh, whatever at that position, it's like either going to be magnetized up or down, so to speak, which represents either there's a one or a zero at that position. And so then, uh, what happens is there will be a head that reads and writes the, the bits from that magnetic material. So for example, if it's a tape, the tape would be you know, just running past some head and at that head, it's either, well, roughly either magnetizing or demagnetizing, or you can think of it as either having magnetic field in one direction or the other. Usually it actually works by magnetizing and demagnetizing, but it doesn't really matter how, that, that, that's a detail of, of, of how, it, how it's set up. But basically what's happening is in, in tiny, tiny regions, you know, tiny fractions of a, of a millionth of a meter across, you are having, this is the position where we're representing the value of this bit. This is the position where we're representing the value of this bit and so on. And so you're storing data 
by storing the pattern of magnetism in these particular kinds of things. Now, in the case of a magnetic disk, the thing is spinning around. Usually it spins around at about 60 revolutions per second, um, and uh, which is the, the frequency of, the, of um, uh, the, the electrical supply in a country like the US, sometimes 50 Hertz in some other countries. Um, the, uh, uh, so the thing is spinning around and it has a, a head that is able to read, uh, that, that's able to go to a particular position. So that the head kind of goes in and out. And as the disc turns around, um, if you want to get the head to a particular position, you basically wait until the disc has turned around so that that sector of the disc is under the head. And then you've arranged that the head is either uh, pushed in or out to the kind of uh, radial position of the particular piece of data you're trying to, to read or write. And fancier disk drives will have many heads and so on. But essentially what's happening is you're reading and writing data by just, uh, by, by, by having the, the disk turn around to the point where the head is over the particular place where that particular piece of data is written. And then the head can either read that piece of data or it can write something new in that particular position. And that's basically how magnetic storage works. And magnetic storage can be, uh, it can be kind of slow to read or write data because you have to wait for that physical disk to turn around to the position. It's only one sixty of a second, but in computer time, one sixty of a second is a long time. And you have to kind of wait for the disk to be in that position to get to the point where you can uh, read or write the data from it. So that's for a long time, sort of large scale storage. And it's still to some extent true. Large scale storage was done using ferry magnetic materials, these kinds of magnetic, this, this effect of, of having these local regions where you would magnetize or not magnetize or magnetize in different directions, representing ones and zeros, representing bits in your data. Okay, so the way most computers actually do it these days is they use um, uh, semiconductor chips. And what's happening there, not sure at what level of detail, maybe let me not go too, too high a level of detail, but what's basically happening is there's uh, there are these essentially uh, switches that are created by, by transistors and transistors on, on a chip, you have the semiconductor. What is a semiconductor? Well, normally there are things which conduct electricity like metals. You can make wires out of metal and you know electricity electrons, which represent the electricity will flow through the wire. They will fr freely flow through the wire from sort of one end to the other. That's the first thing. Then there are insulators, um, things uh, that are, you know, like, I don't know, uh, I don't know, wood or styrofoam or, or any of these kinds of things. It's a pretty good insulator um, or plastic or lo lots of kinds of things. Um, insulators have the property that electrons do not travel through them. Electrons get stuck. Electrons are still, uh, are, you know, electrons exist in atoms and they don't get to get outside of their atoms. The electrons can't get to the point where they can sort of roam freely in the material. Electrons are always stuck inside atoms. Okay, semiconductors are part way in the middle. So the way it works is uh, electrons will either be stuck inside atoms or if you kind of increase the energy of the electrons, they can reach what's called the conduction band, which is a place where the electrons are no longer bound to an individual atom, but can kind of roam freely in the material. And that's how metals work, is they, the electrons that, that roam freely are in this conduction band, slightly higher energy. And so they are, they're able to roam around the metal. And when you put a voltage on the metal, you're pushing the electrons through from one end to the other. Okay, so semiconductors work a little bit differently. And what, what happens with a semiconductor is if you're not putting a, 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 a sort of a big voltage, the, the thing will just sit there and, you know, with all the electrons sort of stuck inside their atoms. If you put a certain voltage, it's often six volts, like for silicon, sort of a critical number. If you put that voltage, if you're pushing the electrons with that sort of amount of force, the electrons will get sort of will be allowed, will be sort of taken away from their atoms and they will get into a conduction band and they will be able to sort of roam freely in the semiconductor. So sort of if you push them hard enough, they'll kind of roam freely. And so that, that means it's different from an insulator where they don't roam freely at all or from a metal where they roam freely all the time. And so if you sort of push it hard enough, it will roam freely. And that mechanism can be used to make essentially switches 
where you're saying uh, if if you you you're trying to you're getting a current to go from from this place to that place, and depending on the voltage in the middle, um, you'll you'll either it'll either allow the current to pass or not. So that makes the so-called field effect transistor, and the that can be done in semiconductors like silicon. Silicon is the most famous and most widely used semiconductor. And uh, there's there's a lot of detail about exactly how you do that with doping the semiconductor with different kinds of materials, and you essentially make these features on the semiconductor by etching them, uh, by by cutting away layers of the semiconductor that have slightly different characteristics. And the way you make a memory, a memory chip, is there are lots of uh, uh, pairs of of transistors basically, which together make a um, um, uh, can make a, a sort of a, a thing which either can be sort of having a roughly a circulating current of electrons or not having a circulating current of electrons. It's not quite right, but that's a good approximation. Okay, so that allows you to make, uh, so so in a, in a you'll have these chips where there's just an array of billions of these little tiny, tiny pieces that have a few transistors in them that correspond to something where as soon as you've got some sort of current or roughly of electrons in there, just sort of stays circulating around until you tell it to stop. And that's how you store the memory. And so there are typically two kinds of two general kinds of um uh, of kinds of RAM, random access memory. It's called random access memory because unlike a, a disk, for example, where you like have to wait for the, for the disk to turn around and get to a particular position to read that bit, in random access memory, it's just a pure electronic issue of saying, oh, I want to, I have these, I have this whole array of wires that come into the chip and I can just say, I want to read the particular bit at this position. And it, it can that can happen immediately, and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have to wait for a disk to turn around or anything like that. So it's random access memory. You can access it randomly wherever you want, uh, at any position you want, rather than having to wait for that particular position to sort of come around as the disk turns. So there are two general kinds: static RAM, dynamic RAM. So roughly in in in, in dynamic RAM, which is what's most common in computers. This sort of little current effectively decays, and you have to kind of every uh, how often is it? A uh, few times a second, I think. You have to you have to sort of give it a kick to keep to keep that bit sort of uh, maintained in the memory. Um, so if you if you like, uh, you know, if the power goes out and there's no backup battery or anything, then the memory is just lost. Whereas static RAM, um, you can. Uh, it, it is slightly slower to read and write things, but you can have the memory preserved even when the power is turned off. So, okay, so that's how typical modern um, uh, storage devices work, is using semiconductor memory and memory chips. And um, uh, just to confuse things, there are these things called solid state disks or SSDs, which kind of look to a computer like a disk, like one of these things that turns around, but actually they're solid state which means they're really semiconductor memory. Okay, so there are all kinds of variants that people have tried on semiconductor memory, for example. Uh, for example, another one is so-called flash memory, um, where the, um, which is similar to semiconductor memory, but has slightly different characteristics. You have to kind of blast it with a lot of energy to write a bit, but then reading the bit is easier. So it's it can be sort of very slow, or even you can only write it once in some cases, there are cases where you can have things like um, you have a memory like EEPROMs, which are uh, where you can you can write it once and then um, uh, and then it just stays there unless you expose it to ultraviolet light and then you destroy the memory that's there. Um, and there there are various different variants like that. But people have been interested in are there completely different ways to store digital information, and there have been a variety of things tried. So one approach is to store the information using uh, things based on light. Okay, so uh, how does a, a CD-ROM, which probably the older people here will certainly know what that is, or a, um, a DVD, how does a DVD work? It's a, it's a, it's a thing where there are, um, it's, it's like a magnetic disk, except that the, the data is not stored magnetically. It's not stored as something which you can detect using an electrical device. 
it's stored optically. Um, and what happens is the the in, in all these sort of uh, in all these different positions on this disc for a DVD, for example, um, DVD stands for digital video disc. Um, in all these different positions on the disc, you will have something which either where it either absorbs light or doesn't absorb light. And so then what happens is you have a little tiny laser and you shine that laser on that particular position on this disc. And depending on what's on at that position on the disc, the laser light will either be reflected back or not. And that's how you represent the one or the zero. Now, when you create a DVD, you're doing it usually by essentially a, a, a physical printing process. Um, you're not doing it like you do in computer memory where you have an, an electrical process for the computer that's writing the data. Instead, you're, you're just, um, uh, you're, you're creating it once and for all. And, um, uh, and, then, um, um, uh, and, and then you're able to read it as many times as you want. So um, the, uh, um, somebody is commenting here that static RAM is volatile and I'm, I'm getting myself, let's see. The, uh, uh, all right, let me try to remember how this all works. Um, somebody can perhaps explain to me. Um, and usually there is, uh, now we have, to, we have to backtrack a bit. So I, I was explaining about how um, uh, different kinds of computer memory either require some uh, refresh every, uh, every some amount of time or do not. And um, uh, let's see, the, um, I have to remember what um, the, the kind of thing that doesn't are so-called read-only memories, where I think what's happening is uh, that you're, you're sort of blasting it through. Um, okay, okay, okay. The, all right, so I'm being, I'm being reminded that, uh, good, well, my memory is not perfect here. Um, static RAM, it says, is fast and expensive. Dynamic RAM is less expensive and slower. Um, so uh, I don't know the details offhand of how that works. Um, I mean, I think that the, um, uh, there are different configurations of transistors that you end up using to store bits or not. And um, there are, are, are ways that you can sort of blast things with enough current that you kind of permanently change the structure of the um, uh, uh, of the kind of um, uh, of the circuit. Um, but that's not what's happening in, in ordinary RAM. That's what's happening in in uh, various kinds of read-only memories where you just blast the data in once and then you're going to read it many times. But okay, so there's something for me to learn here. Um, but anyway, back back to back to optical kinds of storage. So the most um, the uh, uh, the sort of most obvious way of having a DVD work is you you kind of um, uh, you kind of print out the DVD once and it has you know all sorts of details at the level of of the positions of individual bits and you get to read it. There were some technologies like writable DVDs where you would have a higher intensity laser that could actually etch out, uh, that could do things, I, I don't know whether it actually melted the material or how it worked too, or maybe it had a, a material that was sensitive to very high intensity light that had some kind of um, uh, uh, nonlinear optical effect. But in any case, that was a technology that seemed to be popular for a little while, um, but I think was quite slow to write data to. And then, uh, but then there's a question. So, so in terms of, uh, you know, it, it's it's when you have an optical material, you can have you have some material where you're where you're sort of uh, not quite changing its color, but changing the way that it reacts to light. That's a way to store things, but it's not very easy to change that on the fly. Having said that, there are electro-optic materials which do allow you to change it on the fly using electrical effects, but I don't think that's a a common storage mechanism. So. 
the I mean the idea of uh, so there there are different kinds of approaches one can take to to storing data, and uh, the, it's really a question of of a lot of trade offs in how long does the data last there. You really need some element that where you can push it in some way, it will go into a different state and it will stay in that state, and. So people have done things like, for example, there was a big amount of enthusiasm of using superconductors, which are materials where electrical currents can just be set up in the material and they just keep going forever. The problem with superconductors is all the ones we know uh, operate only at very low temperatures. So you end up with at least liquid nitrogen, if not liquid helium, cooling your, your device. And so there are things called Josephson junctions that uh, sort of have, have these more or less circulating currents and uh, that you can read and write with magnetic fields. And that was popular, I don't know, 30 years ago or something. There was a, a bout of enthusiasm for that. Those things are coming back in, in current generation kind of quantum computers. Um, but there are, there are a series of different kinds of methods that people have thought about as ways to kind of store things. Now, the ultimate way to store things is to have a molecule and to have individual configurations of atoms in the molecule. Because you know, in, in the current, in current semiconductor storage devices, you're using around 100,000 electrons per bit that you store. The, the, the total number of electrons is around 100,000. And uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's down to tens of thousands now, but I think it's, I think it's still around 100,000 electrons per bit. And you, would, you ask yourself, could we make an example of something where there is a molecule where individual configurations of atoms um, in the molecule are... Um, uh, um, uh, are, um, uh, are storing the data. And obviously we have one very good example of that, which is in us, the DNA that we have, there are bases that, are, you know, the AC, GT, different bases, which are clumps of atoms, not very big, that uh, can be stuck onto this backbone. And for us, we have altogether 6 billion of these stuck on this backbone um, and wound up in double helices and, and able to be replicated and all those kinds of things. But fundamentally, we're storing data in DNA and DNA is a fairly stable molecule, unlike RNA. Um, it's a fairly stable molecule, which is why we can like extract DNA from uh, you know, frozen critters that uh, have been frozen for, uh, you know, for a million years or something and um, expect that the DNA won't have kind of self-destructed. So DNA is an example of a molecule on which we can store things. It's not very fast right now to read out the data from that DNA. For example, we read it out when we build proteins, but that uses this whole elaborate apparatus that takes milliseconds to seconds to actually operate. So it's not very good for sort of nanosecond or, or less scale, you know, billionth of a second scale computer kind of applications. But so, you know, the sort of holy grail of, of storing things is to store things in molecules and to store them at very high density where small clumps of atoms are, sensi are, are what, um, um, what's needed to, to store things. And we don't yet know a systematic way to get things stored down at the level of molecules. We have the example of DNA that biology has provided us with, but um, uh, we'd really like to have other, what are called heteropolymers where polymer is just a, a chemical, which is a repeat of the same element many, many times. A heteropolymer means it's a, it's a sort of a repeat of things, but there's a, a change. Um, you can have, you can sort of swap in and out different elements in this long chain. And that's, that's how DNA works. And we'd like to have other kinds of molecules where we can store information at that level. We don't yet know how to do that. I think it's a sort of coming attraction for molecular scale computing. All right, let me see. Um, now, if somebody, if somebody posts to me an explanation of how static versus dynamic RAM work, I can tell everybody else. Um, uh, oh, there's a question from Pale Blue here. Why do DVDs um, need to spin these days? Why not just scan top to bottom directly into memory? That's an interesting question. Well, the reason you want the DVD to spin is because you're not just scanning it into memory. I mean, you're, you're usually actually, well, maybe you are, maybe you just want to read the DVD into memory. Then the answer to that question is, 
because that's the way the machines were originally built and why change them. Now, you know, if one was reading one of those vinyl records these days, it might be better instead of actually having a, a, a you know, record player with a needle going up and down in the vinyl grooves to actually have a very high resolution optical system and just scan it from top to bottom. That might be a better solution. But I think with DVD technology, it's still like, well, we've got a DVD reader, why not use the DVD reader? Um, there's a question from Bobby about how does DVD RW, that's the read and write, um, and I, I think the answer is it uses a higher intensity laser to be able to, to sort of zap the plastic in the DVD. Uh, let's see, there's a question from Jonas here. Follow up to a question about storing information. Is there at present uh, optical end-to-end -end computers where everything works optically? Um, would it be easier or harder to have a multi-valued optical computer, not binary, than an electronic one? Okay, so the answer is there aren't really yet sort of full-scale optical computers. I think there will be. And I think I just was seeing some article, I've been saying this is going to happen for like decades, that people are going to talk about quantum computers, but they're really going to make optical computers. What is an optical computer? An optical computer, instead of using electrons and electricity, is just using uh, very small amounts of light um, as the thing to represent information. So it's like either there is, is light here or there isn't light here. The light comes in photons, just like electricity comes in electrons. And so what one's doing is one's having sort of interactions, uh, one's having photons be used to transmit information around. Now, usually what happens is, the question is, can you make something like a transistor for optics? Can you make kind of an optical analog of a transistor, an optical analog of a kind of switch where you're, you're having one thing that's controlling, for example, whether light can go through or not, where you can sort of use light to control whether light can go through something. Well, to do that, you have to use so-called nonlinear optics. So generally, light doesn't interact much with itself. For all practical purposes, you have two light beams, you have two laser beams. You can shine them right through each other. The, the photons will just go straight through without interacting. There is a very tiny quantum effect that causes so-called light-by-light -light scattering that causes photons to, to actually interact with each other. But it's an incredibly, incredibly tiny effect for ordinary visible light photons. It becomes more significant when you have very high energy photons, but uh, like in gamma rays and so on. But even, even there, you have to, it's, very, it's still a very small effect. But so in a first approximation, light just, just goes straight through things. And, and you can't, you know, you, to get two beams of light to, to interact with each other, to, to do something where, for example, you make a logical gate where you say, only let something through if both this photon and this photon are present, but otherwise don't. That's something that is more difficult to do. Okay, how do you do it? Well, you can do it by using nonlinear optical elements. And there are a variety of different kinds of nonlinear optical elements. And there are also optical elements that interact with electricity, electro-optics, um, where, uh, let's see, where does one see those? Um, the, uh, I think if you've been on a 787 airplane, I think that they, these, many of them have um, electro-optic, um, they use electro-optics for their um, uh, windows. Um, instead of having a, a blind that you pull down, you're just sort of pressing a button and the, and the window goes black. And the way that works is it's, it's putting an electric field um, uh, through this material. And when the material, when the electric field is going through the material, the uh, material uh, will make, uh, will, will stop certain light from going through it. Um, uh, and uh, and if, if you don't put the, the electric field, it won't. Um, so, but that, that's a way to sort of interact between electricity and light is to use electro optics to basically have it be uh, the most common thing is uh, the original. Well, it's uh, these electro optic elements that things called Kerr cells are one, one common case where basically you're, you're putting, when there is an electric field, when there's a voltage across the material, the material lines things up in the material in such a way that uh, light that is in one polarization, that light where the, effectively the, the, the variations in the electric field are in one direction, can't get through. And so 
you can uh, and you can make therefore you can when you stop that getting through when you have another cross polarizer you can prevent any light from getting through and so on so that's a way of sort of taking electricity and light and making them interact now light interacting with light more challenging so an example of how that can be done um and i'm not not sure let's see well here's an example so-called saturable absorbers so normally if you have a material it's either transparent or it's not transparent you put a, you put light into it it's um uh um the um you um uh uh the thing the thing has some um uh if, if it's transparent the light will go through if it isn't transparent the light will be stopped okay there are some materials where if you've put a lot of light into it already it will then become less transparent it, it sort of saturates as you put more light in you stop being able to get light through it and, and roughly that's happening because as you put the light in you're forcing some of the atoms and the material to go into different states and in those different states they don't let more light through and so that's an example of how you can have light control light so to speak in one of these systems and there are a variety of those kinds of components but i don't think there is yet invented sort of the perfect transistor like switch for light and that's what you would need to make sort of really good optical computers there are other ways to make kind of optical computers oh there's a there's a whole okay there are some kinds of computations where it is very natural for them to be done using light particularly things called fourier transforms which are important in processing signals and in various kinds of analysis of data those are things which very naturally happen with light just by the nature of the way that um light that um uh oh i should have explained oh this is another whole can of worms okay so while photons can't interact with each other you just shine two beams of light through each other there is this uh, uh the interference effects well this is more complicated let's i don't think they're directly relevant to the way that you would build um your typical optical computer at this point um the uh um okay i'm being told that i'm very late here and nobody reminded me what time it was so i've just been yakking on about storage methods and so on um but uh so i think we have to we have to uh, uh stop here for today um the uh oh gosh so many interesting questions here um and uh uh all right well um i think i think i didn't the, so i i was sort of answering a little bit about optical computers i think that there is there is every reason to believe that one will be able to make optical computers that run faster um do better things than electronic computers but some of that technology just doesn't exist yet um and uh uh i think that some of the things that we think of as being features of quantum computers particularly these so-called interference effects um that um uh will happen in optical computers and um that may be something that's useful for doing computations although some of the sort of potential magic of quantum computers which i'm pretty skeptical about anyway um will not happen for optical computers though some some magic will happen but some will not All right i should i should wrap up here and um lots of interesting questions for next time thanks for joining us and uh see you another time bye for now you've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast you can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel for more information on Stephen's publications live coding streams and this podcast visit stephenwolfram.com